Our text this morning is found in Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. In our scripture reading, we have the New Testament commentary on the portion of scripture that is before us, a difficult passage indeed. May the Holy Spirit give us light. Genesis 25 and verse 28. And Isaac loved Esau. Let's go back to verse 27. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me. And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him and sold him his birthright unto Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. There is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. He went his way. And Esau despised his birthright. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this portion of Scripture, we pray for the light of your word, the light of the Spirit of God who moved upon men to pen these very words. Oh, Lord, we see the gospel here, and we pray that the Spirit of God would make make these truths clear and plain to us. Those who are halting between two opinions, those who think lightly of the blessed privileges that you've given to them, those who are in Christian homes who may not appreciate what it means to be around the things of God and to know the gospel, and then those, Lord, who just may be coasting in their spiritual lives, not realizing their responsibility, why you've left us here. The hour is growing late. The sands of time are sinking. Lord, may we, not one of us, look down upon the things of God, the privileges of God, the very privilege of being in this congregation this morning. We know that we are here by divine appointment and that the Spirit of God moves among His people and blesses your word. And I pray that you do that today. Lord, I beg for you to help us and to show us these truths this morning. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Here we have before us a snapshot, a window view into a home of Old Testament believers. And not just any home, but these are privileged and blessed people the son and daughter-in-law of Abraham and Sarah, and their twin grandsons, Jacob and Esau. Now, to be true, the best of people are 
still just people, aren't they, at their very best. We must keep that in mind as we study the Scriptures because the Holy Spirit reveals to us details that that you would not see unless He was doing that. You could read my biography or autobiography and I could read yours, but we would never see it as if the Holy Spirit wrote it. So we must keep in mind that this is the biography of the Holy Spirit and He shows us the good and the bad that we would rather not be seen. So let us keep that in mind as we're privileged to learn from this home and this family, this marriage, this parenting, and these men. Salvation does not make us sinless. Our record is cleared, praise the Lord, in the court of heaven. We are justified. We are made right with God. We have God's Spirit, His divine help to deal with the situations of life, the seeming injustices, the problems and the things that that are unclear to us to help us to deal with our sinful nature, our sinful inclinations, and, and can cooperate with Him in putting off sin. But the Bible, as I've mentioned, is a divine record book of the choices and the actions of God's people. May we never forget that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. That's why we must study all the Scripture, the old and the new. It is written for our learning. And the Bible tells us under the Apostle that all Scripture is profitable for instruction, for correction, for rebuke, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now, hope is not a maybe-so-iffy kind of thing. uh, Hope is the promises of God that may not have yet been realized in our own experience. The blessed hope of Christ's return is just as sure as it's already happened. So we, through the comfort and the patience and the comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Our hope in these things are increased as we study them. The Holy Spirit records for us in verse 27, and the boys grew. And so we're fast-forwarding here from their birth, their prayerful conception, the mother's questions and the Lord telling her exactly what he was doing, two nations in her womb, the perception of those babes even in in, in, in the womb, knowing and perceiving and struggling, an amazing thing to us. And the Bible tells us that Esau became a man, a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. Now let me pause right here and say that all of my life, and I have been reared in the church and under the teaching of God's word all of my life. And I must say that all of my life I've heard preachers and Bible teachers amazingly when they come to these verses, put Esau in a positive manly light and Jacob in a negative one. And I think we've done injustice to the scripture to even think in that way. And I hope to show you that this morning. As John Phillips puts it, Esau was a man of the field. Jacob was a man of the fold. Esau chose the kind of life that delighted Cain. Jacob chose the kind of life that delighted Abel. Esau's passion was to kill, and Jacob's was to protect. We must not get the idea that Jacob was a weakling. He was anything but that. But his instincts and interests were pastoral. 
protective, and productive, whereas Esau's were to kill, to maim, and to destroy. But for some reason, many people think of Esau's lifestyle and put him in a favorable or commendable light and those of Jacob less than desirable. But I want you to notice here this morning that the opposite is actually the truth. You see, things are not always as they seem. And we must not just have a cursory skimming reading of the scriptures. We should always look deeper and ask the Lord to show us the truths that are in every line, in every precept. A closer examination of the facts and of the truth is always called for, isn't it? Why is Esau's being a cunning hunter well thought of? Well, we view it from our culture, and especially in the South, where, and in Americans, where gun ownership and all of a very hot topic and a very protected right, and hunters and so forth are always well thought of, and I'm not here to put them in a negative light, but we often view Scripture through culture, and that's not always an accurate thing to do. Most often it is not, especially when you're talking about things that happened hundreds and thousands of years ago in another land in a different place. Esau's family is no longer in danger of wild beasts destroying them. It's not as if he was doing this to protect the home. The family's business, if you will, their wealth was what? Flocks and herds. And so all the meat and the dairy products and all the byproducts of flocks and herds were readily available at his beck and call in the fold, in the, the sheep fold or the cattle stall at, close at hand. There was no need for Esau to daily and continually as a lifestyle hunt for food. It is a symptom into the kind of person that he was. Dr. Henry Morris notes that there was no... Uh, overpopulation of animals that needed thinning out. But for the sake of a a balanced ecology uh, is obvious from the fact that Esau had to become a cunning hunter to find them. Do you understand? The only other hunter mentioned in the Bible, do you know who that was? Nimrod, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, the mighty hunter before are literally against the Lord. And so... One biblical hunter was a rebel against God, and the other biblical hunter was obsessed an obsessed sportsman, unconcerned with God. Esau preferred playing out in the field all day long. The connotation, he never really grew up and saw any responsibility about the family business. Well, the Jacob can handle that. He, he, he's better at that than I am. I'm just going to go out and play today and tomorrow and the next day, and the next day, continually, even long after he was a grown man, that became his vocation, if you will, to, uh, instead of working for his family and the family business and serving the Lord, he had no interest in that, didn't have time for it. Oh, he had plenty of time, just not time in his life for these things. Turn with me, if you will, this morning as we looked into the scripture reading of the book of Hebrews. We always are to compare scripture with scripture and remind ourselves that the New Testament is the commentary on the old. And you will find out even more information about Esau from the New Testament record. The Bible warns us there in this portion of Scripture that deals with the fatherhood of God, that God disciplines His children. And in fact, it is the proof of ownership, a proof that we indeed are legitimately born children of God, that He does deal with us and chasten us when we have need of it. 
If you have no chastisement, if God never crosses you or stops you in your willfulness and your sinfulness, you have no assurance that you indeed are a child of God. But that he does so should not cause us grief or undue uh, anger. These are proofs of ownership, and every good parent does exactly what is needed. And someone has said, the old Puritan writer said, we might spoil our children, but God doesn't spoil his. He does bless us. He provides for us. But he's a perfect father and does everything exactly right. Aren't you glad of that today? In verse 15 of Hebrews 12, it admonishes us in light of that, looking diligently, we should do everything diligently as a child of God, very carefully, sober-minded, considering these things, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. It always will. Bitterness is a spiritual cancer that will destroy the soul, will destroy your testimony, will destroy your worship, will absolutely eat you alive. You should reject it as you would arsenic or a viper, viper in your house. You reject bitterness. Do not let it sow its seeds in your heart. You may have been wrong. You may have rights. You may have know what, what people have done against you and can give us an accurate record. But if you do not root out bitterness, it will consume you and destroy you. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, but it doesn't just destroy you, does it? What does the Holy Spirit tell us? And thereby, how many? Many be defiled. We call it a spiritual cancer, but it's also a contagious disease because bitterness never just affects the one in whose heart it is thriving. It will always spill over into the relationships that you have with other people. And we see this played out in this home that we're looking in this morning. Less in verse 16 is the biographical information specifically about Esau. Lest there be any fornicator or profane, worthless, useless. Do you understand the word profane is absolutely useless before God? For us to say of anybody that they're useless is about the worst thing you could say about someone. I remember my father used to say of somebody, that man has no account. I wouldn't give you a plug nickel for him. I don't know what a plug nickel is, but he would, he would give his estimate of someone that man is absolutely worthless. And can you say anything worse about somebody? A profane person. And who was that? What Old Testament person example does the Holy Spirit give us to describe that? As Esau. Esau was a fornicator. He was profane, a worthless life. All he did was live to, to please himself. Play every day, all day, every day. That's what his life was. Don't, don't concern me with the facts. Don't concern me with work. I want, I want the blessing. I want what comes from hard work. But don't trouble me with any of that. And this was Esau who for one morsel of meat, a bowl of lentils, that must have been the best-smelling bowl of lentils ever cooked. And one of our dear ladies brought some black-eyed peas to the church this week. I'll tell you, honest this morning, 
I should be honest in the pulpit. I have never, and I told all who would listen, went home and told my wife, who's the best back IP maker I've ever tasted. I've never put anything in my mouth that tasted better than that lady's black eyed peas. I mean it. It was absolutely, I don't know if I was so hungry or if they were so delectable, but they were absolutely. And so when I read this scripture, it just came out. Must have been black eyed peas with pieces of bacon in it is all I can say. (laughs) Bacon, I say. For one morsel of meat did what? Sold. Gave away. Traded. His birthright. Now, I don't know if that, what that means to you, but the Bible tells us, and we'll see in just a moment, but I, I'm also reminded of the verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. Now, the body is not for fornication. Remember, the Hebrews tell us that uh, Esau was profane and a fornicator. He was a, an unbridled, he, a man who just did what he wanted to, met every lust, an unbridled man. And the Bible tells us this body that you possessed is not made for sexual impurity, but for the Lord. Did you know that? Your body is made not for you, for the Lord, for His Holy Spirit to indwell in redemption and salvation and for you to glorify God as a temple before a heathen pagan world. They ought to be examined your life as you live out the, the salvation that God has worked in you and said that's a child of God. They are set apart for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The the body is not made for fornication. That's what the world thinks and says, but for the Lord. In verse 18 says, flee, run away from fornication. He that committeth or practices that kind of lifestyle sinneth against his own body. But Esau didn't care about any of this. In fact, he had absolutely no regard for the spiritual whatsoever or for God's will. Didn't matter. You couldn't tempt him or concern him with those things because they absolutely meant nothing to him. And so often the word of God falls on just those kinds of ears. It could be a clanging brass or cymbal. It doesn't concern the person who hears that the claims of Christ. The very fact that I just reminded you, your body is not yours. You're not yours. You're created by God to honor and glorify him. So some, it will absolutely be like the water that ran down the gutter last night. doesn't mean a thing. He lived for his fleshly desires. He had no self-control. He did only what he felt like doing, and that, according to the Scripture, was unbridled and illicit sexual activity and playing around out in the woods all day long, every day. That was Esau. Oh, what a man Esau was. Oh, he may have been big and strong. He may have been accurate with a bow or with a knife, and that's not anything to, to slight. That's a commendable thing. But that's all he was good at. A cunning hunter. Wouldn't you like that on your tombstone? Here lies the body of Chris Lamb, a cunning hunter. But the real truth behind it is a profane fornicator. Jacob, Esau's twin, is described as a plain man. Would you look there? I want you to mark. I've underlined the word plain in red because I've heard this word in Esau, uh, Jacob described in such unflattering words by most preachers that I've heard. But I want to tell you that word plain there, the Bible tells us, was a plain man dwelling in tents, like his father Isaac, like his grandfather Abraham. 
He, according to Hebrews 11, verse 9, sojourn in the land of promises in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, living in tents, giving his life in that way as the will of God was for him, looking for the promise of God to be in the covenants of God to be fulfilled, very zealous as Elijah was and others about the glory of God, very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. And every day as he watched his older brother by minutes fritter away all that was sacred and good, considering the covenant of the Messiah coming through his lineage, a light thing. It absolutely grieved Jacob. This living and sojourning in tents, as his father and grandfather did, was out of obedience. It wasn't that Jacob thought this is the best way to live. I'm sure he could thought of some other way, but this was God's will for him. Have you considered this morning what God's will is for your life instead of what you want to do? To him, God's plans and promises was far more precious and more important than physical pleasure, which lasts for a season and then it's over with. May I remind you that Esau is going to be an old man one day and he's going to bitterly regret these decisions that he's made. And though Jacob is not a perfect man, remember we said that salvation doesn't make us perfect. Jacob has issues which the Lord will perfect. We'll see that in his life. And God knows the way of the righteous and he knows how to deliver his people out of temptations and into paths of obedience. He knows how to make us willing, doesn't he? He knows how to deal with his own. And he's got Jacob's number. And may I remind you, you, those of you who know the Lord this morning, he knows your address. He's got your email. He knows exactly what to do in your life to get you to where he needs you to be. Praise be his holy name. Jacob was living this life out of a life of obedience, of this restrained temperate life of faith. Sadly, the majority of people live life on Esau's level. Just look. According to the flesh, what I want, what I think, how I feel, what I want to do. There is no real self-discipline, no self-denial, no exercising themselves into godliness, no reaching, as the Apostle Paul tells us, reaching, straining for the things that are before, no pressing That's like bench pressing. This is the month of exercise. It'll last about 15 minutes and then it'll be over with. I see some of you now, you came in climbing up those steps with Ben Gay. I can smell it. You've been working out and running. You got new track shoes, the new socks, all kinds of things. You'll be fit as a fiddle. But no reaching that word pressing for the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. They don't read hard things. A book? What do you mean? Is that on Facebook? Is that that Pinterest? A book on doctrine? They don't read hard things. They don't do hard things. They seek only to live life, a life of comfort, of ease, of luxury, of diversion, of doing what I want to do all day long, every day. That's Esau. They're after the flesh and, and not after the spirit. No wonder they live lives filled with emptiness 
in strife. No wonder you'll see them one day as Esau, bitter tears, not genuine tears of repentance, but tears of regret. My younger brother, he, he was always got his own way. That's not what this is about, is it? It's about what do you treasure? What do you live for? What do you regard? They are their own worst enemy. We need to examine the word, though, in verse 27 that I told you to mark. And I think you'll be amazed at what we discover when we dig a little deeper. We ought to always do that, shouldn't we? I believe the misunderstanding of this one word has put Jacob in a perpetually negative light. And it is the word plain. Nobody wants to be plain. Plain is no flavor. Plain is no flourish. We don't usually think of plain uh, always in a positive light. And I've heard uh, teaching along this line that have taken it even to be effeminate and everything else undesirable in a man. Jacob was a plain man, the Bible tells us, dwelling in tents. I've heard most often Jacob described in that way, a mama's boy who wanted to cook. You've heard, I'm sure, you've heard that kind of preaching along this line, but nothing could be further from the truth. The Hebrew word there for plain is the little word tam, T-A-M. And can I just give you an example of where it's used in the scripture? It literally means perfect or mature, complete, not sinless, but someone who is maturing, they're on their way in grace, they're becoming complete in the Lord, or even it can be translated mature. It is the very same word that the Holy Spirit of God chooses when the Lord in Job chapter 1 verse 8 tells Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And the Lord goes on to describe him as a tam man, a perfect man, an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Does that not shed light on our text this morning about Jacob? Obviously, Jacob had listened as his parents and grandparents had rehearsed the awesome visitations of God. And the promises that God had made to them, the preciousness of God's word was so real to him that he began to desire these things above all things else. Jacob, I would submit to you, deeply appreciated the word of God and realized that he, not Esau, would be the one that God would use and continuing to fulfill his covenant made with his grandfather, Abraham. He was serious about it. The things of God were serious business with him. Are they with you? I just want to pause and ask ourselves the question this morning. What are you most concerned about today? Is it the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or is it all these things that we want added to us. It was serious business with him. He yearned to see God's will and his purposes fulfilled. In other words, unlike his twin, he was mature and spiritual, not perfect. And we'll see that we're going to show, see it in all of this light here. But he was not carnal, not a playboy out every day seeing whom and what he could conquer. That was not Jacob. No, it wasn't. 
He was at home overseeing the flocks and the herds. He was working. He was sweating. He did hard work. There's no one who's ever done that kind of work that could say that looking after animals is an easy thing. He was not sinless, no, and probably did not handle this situation in the right way. But he was jealous for the glory of God, and he was a tam man. The same word used to describe Job, and we see how God regarded Job. Now, God's not through with Jacob. Jacob uh, has some faults and failures along the way. And if I were reading your spiritual autobiography, we could point out a few of those too, couldn't we? And likewise. But in our zeal for the Lord, in our desire to get things done, we can do the right thing in the wrong way. Would you, under, would you agree with me that there? You can do the right. Let not your good be evil spoken of. Don't try to do God's will in an unprescribed way. If God hasn't sent you to do that just like that, you better wait. God can take care of his own business. Can you say amen right there? And when the time to move is to move, you better move, but not until... And you don't have to do things in, a, in an underhanded way. We ought to also examine Rebecca here as well. Remember, too, that she had a deep desire to do the Lord's will. Let's look back to when Abraham's servant went and found Rebecca. Look, did you notice what she did when he asked her to get him some water? She brought and went trip after trip with her water jug and watered all the camels that were bringing all the treasury of Abraham to show off to her, her family to win her and woo her. And she wasn't looking at what was on the camels. She was busy getting the water and, and, and nourishing the camels, watering the camels of Abraham. So her willingness to leave her home at the drop of a hat, so to speak. Her family said, well, if she wants to go, she said, yes, this is God's will for my life. I will go. Unbelievable. Sight unseen. How many of you ladies would have said, sure, I'll go to over yonder and meet whoever. Mr. Wonderful, I don't know what he looks like or, you know, who he is. Uh, all I can go on is what this man has told me. She was willing because she was a spiritual person. That's what we're talking about in the, the biblical uh, meaning of hope. Her hope was in the Lord, not in, in the feeble sight, in the schemes of man. Even as God's people, we can live on that level for so long that we think that we have to live that way to do the will of God. And nothing can be further from the truth. I want you to know that Rebecca was a spiritual woman. I did not say a sinless woman. Because whenever the Holy Spirit says, but, we should take note. That is a divine conjunction is what I call them. When we read there that Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebecca loved Jacob. There is a problem here, isn't there? I mean... I mean, you don't have to be a, a, a child psychologist or a family counselor to see that things are not quite what they should be. But let me say, she had a strong desire for God's will and influenced at least one of her sons in this way. Let's, let's face it, Jacob did not have those godly desires and was not the plain man that he was without parental influence. And I would say both of the parents, she and Jacob were, minds spiritually so and the Holy Spirit puts it that uh, Rebecca loved Jacob I, let me pause and say here and I don't want to get off base I don't think I am 
that parents must fight against the sin of favoritism. And I said sin of favoritism. Often the tendency is to butt heads with the child that's just like you. I mean, they're just like you, and their temperament is just like you, and you get into it because that's just me-me over there. And you look back to yourself when you were there, and the child most like you is often the one that you butt heads with. And to get along at least on a day-to-day with the one opposite from us because our mates are often have opposite tendencies than we do. That's what attracted us together. And so we tend to get along with the child that is, that is most like our mates and butt heads with the one that's most like us. And everybody who's reared children knows what I'm talking about. And it is a work of the Holy Spirit and by God's divine grace to put all those fleshly, human, real things aside and love and act and do according to God's word and not how we feel. You see how important this is in every area. What a disservice to children not to be loved equally and fairly. Now, it is not Rebecca's fault that um, Esau was a man after the flesh. We are born in this world, immortal souls, with our own wills. And that each one of us must answer before a holy and sovereign God ourselves. And I don't want to put undue pressure on these parents, although we can see, as the Bible has pointed out, these things, and we'll notice them as we go through the Scripture. But there's no indication that Isaac and Rebekah didn't love both their sons. They prayed for them. They asked the Lord for them. And, and Rebekah was so spiritual that when she sensed something wrong in her pregnancy, she poured out her heart before the Lord to, what, what is this? And God showed her. He told her. He told her his will at that time. And so, but because of Esau's settled rebellion and absolute disdain for the spiritual, it made things at home very difficult. And, and those of you who've reared children know what that's like at, at times. Esau, no doubt, was g- uh, gone most of the time, got out of the house as soon as he could, didn't come home until he had to. What's there to, what's there to eat? That's what his question was. Coming in only to eat and to sleep and go out again partying and doing his own thing. And of course that broke his mother's heart. And his father, to compensate, uh, tried to reach out and excuse, no doubt. And I think we see something else here that we'll have to point out, that Jacob, who got it, who saw the Lord's purpose and had a zeal for it and realized that Esau would never do the right thing, just was not going to. Isaac, no doubt, burdened about Esau's waywardness and, and way, wanting Esau to, to want the birthright. There's nothing more than a parent wanting their child to want the things of God. And you cannot put that in their heart. You can lead them to the Lord. You can pray them to the Lord and ask the Lord to change and turn their heart. But you cannot do it. The wrath of God will not bring about the righteousness of man. No matter how right it is, the righteousness of God, the wrath of man cannot bring about the righteousness of God. He probably encouraged Esau's responsible lifestyle. And he was proud of Esau's prowess. His rewards and awards for being a cunning hunter. The heads and the antlers and all the trophies that he brought home. His excellence in hunting wild game and delighted in eating his venison, the Bible tells us in verse 28. But evidently, 
uh, uh, Rebecca could make goat taste like venison. She was a good cook, so there's no excuse there. Was Isaac slipping spiritually as he aged? We're going to hear from Isaac just once again when he gives the blessing, and we hear of him no other, no else in the record. As important of a person he is in the biblical narrative. Was Isaac slipping? This is always a great danger, children of God. Always a great possibility of backsliding. The backslider in heart, the Bible tells us, is filled with his own ways. Not God's ways, but his own ways, his own reasoning. Great age does not mean great spirituality. Did you know that? You don't coast into heaven in your rocking chair. You don't get a pass because you have years under your belt and arthritis and limited opportunities. We, through much tribulation, must enter the kingdom of God. We never take a day off. And I will tell you, the battle gets more intense as I age, not less intense. Oh, we thought when we were in our 20s and 30s, oh, to get through this period of life till we could get to a settled Mature adult, and guess what? Mature problems come with mature adult years. And then the children come, and the temptations to cut corners, and to to do things differently from the scriptures. All of this is a continual battle in the heart of every believer. Sometimes age, rather than sanctifying us, And drawing us closer to the Lord and his will and his way causes the lines to be blurred and the sharpness rubbed off and we just kind of exist. Oh, we haven't denied the faith and we're still faithful and all those words we like to use, but where is the the sharpness, the zeal, the the concern and looking at things accurately from the scripture instead of through the sentimentality of our feelings? If the young are not to let their youth be despised, remember the scripture says that no man despise thy youth. They are to be an example of the believers. How much more so should those who have long walked with the Lord be trophies of his grace and stalwart cedars of Lebanon, trees planted in the house of the Lord. Our daughters polished after the cornerstone, after the similitude of a palace, that we as men be grown up in our youth, cedars of Lebanon, strong and sturdy, like the, the tree in, in chapter 1 of Psalms, whose leaf does not wither in old age. Though our outward man perish, and it certainly is. Just go look in the mirror. Get your senior portrait and put it right by your face and look in the mirror and smile real big. Try to comb your hair like it was then. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> the outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man ought to be renewed, growing. You ought to be a giant with big muscles, spiritually speaking. The inward man being renewed, how? When? Day by day. We need to also consider something else that was prevalent in the culture of that day. If we do not understand the culture of the day, we miss whole portions of the scripture. A binding, expected custom of inheritance. The right of primogenitor. It was the right of the firstborn, not unlike the royal families of 
Europe that uh, who inherits the throne. That goes back thousands of years and was rooted in the thinking of the people of that day. It was unthought of to do anything but the firstborn, the firstborn, the eldest son, the father transferring the family authority and wealth to the control of the eldest son. That was the right of primogeniture. The eldest would receive a double portion of the entire wealth. And now this was not only the the custom and and not biblical law. We need to remember that was not biblical law that the firstborn received. That was the custom, and we see it throughout the Scripture. The father always had the authority and the right to transfer the family affairs to the most responsible, spiritually mature son, as we see in 1 Chronicles chapter 5. You can go back and read that portion of Scripture as an example. Do you know what the duties of the firstborn son were? If he was to rule over the household, then he had to provide for the entire household. Not just he and his wife and his little uh, children. He was the head of the family business, if you will. Both materially and spiritually he was required. He, in fact, was to be the spiritual God or the pastor of the family in this day. This was the, there was the responsibility of building and the sacrifices of the altar as well as teaching and transmitting God's word and promises. Let me just ask you this morning, can you see Esau doing that any way, form, or fashion? This Jacob felt deeply about. They're mature men now. And Esau's getting wilder and wilder, unrestrained behavior. And Jacob is wondering, how is... What's going to happen here? The glory of God is at stake. The promise of the Messiah is at stake. All that God promised to our father, grandfather Abraham is at stake. Oh, can't my father see that? He could only imagine if Esau received all this authority and responsibility, what would happen to the work of the Lord? to the promises of God and the covenant of God. Now, Jacob in his reasoning, no doubt, left off the fact that after all, God is sovereign. What he has said he will do, he will do. But it looked dark. It looks dark today, doesn't it? If you look at things just from a human perspective, all of this looks very dark, doesn't it? The the, the clouds are hanging low and... The foundations are being destroyed, and we ask, what can the righteous do? The work of the Lord seems waning instead of growing, I mean spiritually, and I mean stalwartly according to the Scriptures. The desire of spiritual things is at a low ebb. There was an article in yesterday's Wall Street Journal about the majority or vast number of churches in Europe being turning into skating rinks and restaurants and bars and shops, stalwart, beautiful buildings built with tithe money to the glory of God, now antique stores and dance halls and bars. It went on to say, while attendance is still high in American churches, that the result is not far off as far as the polling of people. So what does that mean to say? That it's a cultural thing, it's a societal thing, it's what I like, what I get out of it when the services stop and when, when the time gets, goes on, no telling what we'll see. But Jacob felt deeply. It looked dark. 
what could be done. Something must be done. And sometimes in our haste, we got to do something. We do something, but we might ought to wait and pour our hearts out before the Lord and say, Now, Lord, this is your work at stake. Now, it looks to me like that the promises you've made are, not, are going to go unfulfilled, but, but Lord, I commit this to you. And, and I'm not saying Esau did not, but I do think that Esau took uh, advantage of a situation here. But I mean, Jacob. But Esau could not have cared less about all this nonsense. In fact, the Holy Spirit tells us what? Very definitively. He despised it. I'm not going to build an altar. What do you mean? I'm not even going. What are you talking about? I have no, I'll kill an animal, but not to sacrifice to God. I'm out here hunting. I've got stuff to do, people to see, places to go. How about you? We're not just studying a story here to entertain ourselves today. The scripture was given for our learning, our admonition, for our correction, for our rebuke. Where do you stand? Silence is uncomfortable in this day, isn't it? Does the word of God and the work of God in his church, which after all is his invention, do you realize that? God is the architect. Christ said, I will build my church. That's not man's idea. His plan, his way of doing business on earth, does it all bore you? Seem tedious and monotonous and insignificant in light of your desires, your goals, your plans, what thrills you. The only thing Esau cared about was the double inheritance part. That sounded good. And like the prodigal son in the New Testament, give me what's mine and I'll be out of here. The rest of it, he had no heart for it whatsoever. Romans 14, verse 17 says, The kingdom of God is not in meat and drink. That's not all there is to life. It's important. It's necessary to eat and drink. But the kingdom of God, that's not all there is to it. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Esau knew nothing about any of that. Give me what I want. Esau's bent the real rock-bottom truth about what he really was was revealed in a test one day. And by the way, it will be tested. Do you know that who you are and what you stand for will be tested at some point in your life? There will come a crossroads. There will come an hour of decision. And here's the hour for Esau. Esau's philosophy was, I'm going to die anyway at some point. He was so lived by his feelings, he, as an idiot, thought he was about to die. He was just hungry. But he had never denied himself anything. And hunger to him was worse than, 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 than he could imagine, not having his desires immediately met. And if I'm going to die anyway, I might as well die with a full stomach. That's the Epicurean philosophy. Eat and drink and be merry. Why? Tomorrow, we're going to, if we're going to die, if we're all going to the grave as animals, and this is all there is to it, we better grab all the gusto as one beer company used to advertise all the gusto we can as we're going around because we're just going around once and then we're out of here that's a lie that's this is not all there is to it yes you will die but that's not all there is to it Esau is going to die one day but that's it's not as he thought it would be in fact he has many more years to live we know this is not the end of it for him several marriages and children will be born before Esau dies 
But it is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment, the reviewing, the examination. Esau cared nothing for the eternal, only the temporal. But one second, when he did pass into eternity, he saw the truth, didn't he? Do you know one second after your soul has left this body, oh, this is what this was about. There is a God in heaven. There is a hell to go to. There is an accounting for this life I lived. And it was so short. Where did it go? What do I have to show? What, what is there to show for this life that I've lived? John Phillips says he was the oldest son of the only God-chosen family on the face of the earth. Heir to a primacy that offered him a direct link to the Messiah and to the priestly as well as princely rites. But he was profane, unhallowed, unsanctified, defiled, polluted, common. For one morsel of meat, Esau despised his birthright. All of earth's lustful passions are thus cataloged in that one phrase, He traded eternal glory for present passion. When you die, and you will, all those fleshly passions will die too. Do you know that? The desire for fornication, the desire for food, the best meal in town, the best restaurant, all that will be dead as well. They will be nothing to you. And if you've lived for them alone, you will have nothing as well. No, no one with, with nothing. Is there anything less of a zero than that? No one with nothing. Esau despised his birthright. Now let me ask you this morning, where do you stand before the Lord? We see the two, two paths, two directions. And all of us, though born to... Our parents, and all the way back to Adam and Eve, we're born sinners. We're born messed up. We're born enemies of God. We're born needing to be reconciled to Him. We're born with proclivities and desires and a destructive nature that will that put self at the, at the head of everything and, and others last, and the Lord not even considered. Religion won't do it. Turning over a new leaf and making a thousand re- resolutions won't change a thing. But God's grace can. And the book of Hebrews tells us that God's grace was available here. Did you miss that? The grace of God. Do you know what that is? The unmerited favor, undeserved, un- unpurchasable favor of God was there and is here. The long-suffering, patience, the grace of God that God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and in our place, the Savior, Christ the Lord. We can see several things here, and I'll just close with pointing out two. I've pointed them out all along the way, but God does not always work according to our preferences. We can say that to Rebecca and Jacob. God doesn't do things exactly when we want to 
or according to the way we would like it done. We see that in God passing over the firstborn and choosing the younger. But when God says something, when God foreknows and, and, and elects and chooses, it is always the best, isn't it? It will come out in the end that that was the best choice to make. And this will be shown in these lives of these two boys as, as it already is. And secondly, we don't have to do wrong to bring about God's will. We don't have to use trickery. We don't like the, be like the cults and just tell half-truths and try to twist things around. We can tell people boldly, you're sinners, you're lost before God. He's a, a loving Heavenly Father who sent His Son to be the Savior. Yes, you're lost, and yes, you will die and go to hell if you do not repent and believe on Jesus Christ. But grace is available today. Mercy is at the door. He is the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you with trembling, trembling feelings, Lord, because this word of yours causes us to tremble. To this man will I look, he that trembles at my word. Lord, we have dealt with, with serious matters today. It covers all the bases. There's not one of us let off the hook but, Lord, to that one outside of Christ, I pray that you would do only what you can do this morning and show your Son to be the Savior. Would you reveal that to those who need to be saved? And may your grace and your power of your Spirit conquer that stubborn will, that lust, that drive to have our own way. And calls them to bow before Jesus Christ just now where they are and submit to him. I ask you today, are you resting in Christ alone for your salvation? I beg you to examine yourself and see if you be in the faith. If you're not, I beg you to put aside your unbelief, your rebellion, your rejection, and self-effort, and would you only receive the salvation that Christ offers you just now? You must be reconciled to God, and He is ready and waiting to be reconciled to you. He says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. He's giving you this opportunity after hearing the gospel to be saved. And I, I beg you to turn from yourself and and your sin, and go to Him just now, in your heart, where you are. Take Him at His word, and with your whole heart, tell Him of your need for His salvation. You can call on Him right now. You don't have to go to a person or perform some religious deed. Ask Him to forgive you. Tell Him you're sorry for your sins, and to give you a clean heart, and to clothe you in His own righteousness. And you don't have to speak out loud, you don't have to do anything like that, but the Lord knows the heart. The Bible promises, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you do that, believing His word and taking His word with a broken and yielded heart, He will save you. Oh Lord, we are on holy ground this morning as we are, always are when we take Your word and wherever we are, wherever it's read or preached, but I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would powerfully 
and mightily and wonderfully bless your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen.